My name is Jermaine Harrison, if we have not met, and I am the students director here at Watermark. I get the privilege of leading and overseeing our ministries to students in grades six through 12. Here's a, yeah, thank you. Um, here is a photo of my family, my wife of three and a half years, Hannah, and our one and a half year old son, Winslow. Um, and it's a, a privilege to be a husband and a dad um, in our family. I was originally born in Jamaica, so I'm from the Caribbean, not from around these parts. Um, but I moved to Dallas in 2010 to attend Dallas Theological Seminary. And around the spring of 2012, I started attending Watermark and uh, jumped all in and serving with the student ministry. And when I graduated um, seminary in 2014, I uh, jumped on the team here and I've been on staff ever since. And um, TA just got done teaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I thought I was out of the woods. He got, he got to, to talk about all the very difficult and challenging topics until I saw what 1 Corinthians 8 was all about. And here we are. So grab your Bible, grab your journal, and let's get ready to learn together. And to set up where we're going, I'm going to start this message with a um, controversial statement. You ready? All coffee tastes the same. <laughs> I, I got some, some claps in the middle. That's, I love that. Um, hey, I feel like I have somewhat of the moral authority to even say that because growing up in the Caribbean, we didn't drink coffee. Um, we drank tea. And so when I moved here in 2010, it was a blank slate. I was willing to try everything, and I did. Beans from every continent across the world. I tried them all. I tried Chemex, I tried pour overs, um, I tried Keurigs, I tried Nespresso, I tried $6 cups of coffee, I tried $1 cups of coffee, and I hate to break it to you, it all tastes the same. <laughs> Additionally, I don't know who needs to hear this, but it's time to stop weighing your coffee beans. It's just, is this time to stop. It's time to stop making sure they're ground to the right, um, the right size for the smoothest drink or whatever it is. It all tastes the same. And I, and I, and I expected the response I got from you guys because it is, it is an illustration of how we as humans see the same thing in different ways. You know, some of you guys love Chick-fil-A, some of you rather Cane's maybe. Some of you guys love Velvet Tacos, some of you would rather Torchy's Tacos. Some of you love uh, Whataburger and some of you are, are In-N-Out fans, right? We all see same, the similar things um, in different ways. And the reason I start there is because I think there's an important question for us to consider. What about disagreeing or seeing things differently on things that actually matter? What about seeing things differently on things that actually matter? Unfortunately, there is so much um, disunity and division and conflict and anger and harsh words spoken and um, the list goes on because we see things differently. And maybe for some of you, you haven't spoken to a fellow Christian family member in your family for months, for years, because you see something differently. Or maybe you just had a heated argument on social media yesterday or this past week. 
I firmly believe that here in our church, not just somewhere out there and with other Christians, but here in our church, among us, there's too much unresolved conflict and lingering hurts and broken friendships because we see things differently. And so praise God for 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because it shows us that the um, seeing things differently and the disunity that can come from it isn't unique to 2022. When, when this letter to the Corinthian church was written almost 2,000 years ago, those Christians um, were wrestling with a question that we're going to spend our time answering this morning. And that is, how do Christians preserve unity when they disagree on controversial topics? How do Christians preserve unity when they disagree on controversial topics? And here's what I mean by controversial. I want to make sure that I'm clear. What the Apostle Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8 isn't uh, the foundational um, beliefs of Orthodox Christianity. He's not saying, oh, some people can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and some people can't and it's fine. Some people can believe he rose from the dead, and some people, if you believe differently, that's okay. That's not what he's saying. That's not the the topics that he's addressing. He's also not addressing um, topics that are clearly defined and clearly addressed in God's word, like marriage, sexuality, greed, pride, abortion, self-righteousness. He's more so addressing gray area issues, if you will, um, where where well-meaning and genuine Christians can believe and hold to a a different opinion or conviction than someone else. So the goal of this message is not these things. Let me share with you. It's not to make you um, believe what I believe or hold a conviction that I hold. The goal of this message isn't even to tell you you shouldn't have a conviction or that you shouldn't share your conviction. There's a time and there's a place appropriately for all of those things. But hopefully, as we spend our time in 1 Corinthians 8, um, what you'll see is that God isn't necessarily 100% clear and specific on 100% of the issues that we face. And that faithful followers of Jesus can disagree and still maintain unity. And that having unity doesn't mean uniformity where everyone believes the same thing. Because there was disunity among the Corinthian Christians on a controversial topic. And Paul writes to them, and I think by extension to us, to equip us with three habits that create unity when controversial topics push us to divide. So that's what we're gonna spend our time the rest of this morning addressing and uh, looking at God's word, 1 Corinthians 8, as Paul shares with us three habits that create unity when controversial topics push us to divide. The first habit that he shares with us, we'll see in verses one through three, is this. Care more about making a difference than making a point. Care more about making a difference than making a point. Let's read 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, 
He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So let me set the stage for you. In the Corinthian church, there were some Christians who believed that they could eat meat and food that was offered to idols in the pagan temples of the day. And the reason they believed that is that since they'd come to faith in Jesus, they understood that those idols aren't real. They have no power. They don't exist. And so maybe selfishly they were like, okay, so now we can go to the, the, the temple, the pagan temples, where the best meats, the best steaks are, and we can get some Nick and Sam's type steak for an Applebee's price. Come on, let's go, right? That's what some of the Christians are saying. Idols aren't real, this doesn't matter, we can enjoy this. And on the other hand are some Christians who had worshiped idols and offered these sacrifices their entire lives who are saying, man, I don't want to be associated with or connected with anything to do with the idol worship that I once was associated with. And anyone who does it, man, I think that they're, they're, they're participating maybe in some sense in the worship of these false gods. And so we have this challenge, this, this topic, this controversial issue that's bringing division amongst the Corinthian church. And as I thought about that and thought about us in 2022, I wondered if the Apostle Paul was to write a, a letter to Watermark Community Church or Christians in 2022, what would be his now concerning issues that he would address? And so I wrote down some. He probably would write us um, letters concerning these. Now concerning tattoos. Now concerning uh, sending your kids to public school or private school or homeschooling. Now concerning alcohol consumption. Maybe how to discipline your kids. The music or the TV shows or the movies that you watch. Masks, vaccines, social media, gun control. Those will probably be many of the controversial topics that he would write to us um, to invite us to consider what God's word has to say. And I think that it's very interesting that Paul doesn't um, challenge the Corinthian church to pick a side or, to, or, or he doesn't um, tell them, hey, you're right for what you believe. You're right for the, the conviction that you, that you hold. Instead, the second half of verse one, he says, this knowledge whatever your belief or your conviction is, it puffs up. He's kind of writing to those that, that wrote, it seems like some of the, the Christians wrote the letter to him and said, hey, tell these people who think meat sacrifice to idols means we're participating in sin to leave us alone. Let us live our lives, right? And Paul is challenging maybe that group in particular. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so like uh, Francis Chan says, too often, we have our facts right and our hearts are wrong. Too often, we have our facts right and our hearts are wrong. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that knowledge is essential. Like you should accumulate knowledge, um, but you should have a specific goal in mind for the accumulation of knowledge. If your accumulation of knowledge is just for you, so that you know more, or so that you can live your life how you want, then you've missed the point of knowledge. Because the goal of knowledge, the end goal should always be to help 
love and build up another follower of Jesus, not for your selfish motives or your selfish gain. And so you should get all the knowledge you can. We should, we should um, go to Bible studies, we should read books, we should um, listen to podcasts or whatever it might be to learn more about whatever the topic is, but don't just stop at knowledge, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Move forward, move on to love. And he emphasizes that idea in verse two, where he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something that is, has a insufficient or incomplete view of knowledge, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Because if knowledge is your goal and that's your end point, you're probably gonna be a person that cares more about making a point than making a difference. And then he kind of challenges them with what he says in verse three. He's been talking about knowledge and then here's what he says in verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, he's saying the most important kind of knowing or knowledge isn't what you know, isn't what someone else knows, isn't what you are convicted by. It is that the God of the universe knows you. How are you known by God? Apart from the work of Jesus and placing your faith and trust in his death and burial and resurrection from the dead to offer you new life and new hope and reconciliation to God, apart from that, we are enemies of God. And so to be known by God is to have accepted and trusted in the finished work of Jesus. That is the most important kind of knowing. And so the Corinthian church, there was division among them because some people thought it was more important. They were known for uh, making a point versus making a difference. What are you known for? What are we known for? In recent times, there's, there's uh, emerged this concept called a starter pack. And every one of you guys has a starter pack. And all you need to do is ask your friends, hey, what are the most iconic things about me? What are the iconic habits or um, things I enjoy or beliefs that I hold? Those things would be in your starter pack. For example, this Lululemon belt bag, not a fanny pack. This Lululemon belt bag is uh, maybe part of what I'm known for. Everything that I, that I need to travel with is in this convenient belt bag. My phone, my wallet, my keys, my sunglasses, my gluten pills, my eye drops, a pen for whenever I need to write something down, some gum, because you never know when you might need gum. Everything is in here and my pockets are empty and it's something uh, that I'm known for, right? I'm also known maybe as a truth teller or a problem solver or a, a decision maker. But what I'm less known for is a person marked by compassion or patience or gentleness. And if you read all of Paul's epistles, I don't think I see problem solver in there, but I do see compassion, I see patience, I see gentleness as things that should mark me. And I pray that they mark me more and more every single day. So what's in your starter pack? Are you more known as a keyboard warrior who's uh, typing and sharing your, in, your, uh, your opinions and your beliefs, your convictions online than you are a prayer warrior 
going before the throne of grace for those in your life? Have you shared, have you shared your stances more than you've shared the gospel? Maybe in your marriage, do you care more about winning an argument than you do winning your spouse? If so, you are more interested in making a point than making a difference. And the Apostle Paul in God's word is challenging us, he's inviting us that if we want to create um, habits that, that create unity, when controversial topics push us to divide, we need to be people that care more about making a difference than making a point. Then he moves on to habit number two in verses four through eight, which is to pursue truth while practicing patience. Pursue truth while practicing patience. If you wanna create unity when controversial topics push us to divide, pursue truth while practicing patience. I know this, this spot in the, the chapter, it might be an easy place for me to lose you. I also wanna invite you to lock in because I think it's really important. So maybe in the first point of making a difference over making a point, uh, the Apostle Paul is challenging those who had more freedom uh, to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And right here in these first few verses at least, he's addressing those who um, viewed that as sin. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, verses four through six, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, who's us, Christians, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We just sang that um, in, in our last song. And so for the Corinthians in their context, there were, as I said, lots of pagan idols with a lot of pagan uh, temples where there was lots of worship offered to these um, pagan gods to appease them, to allow, uh, they believed, for prosperity to enter their lives, for, they to, for them to be protected from danger and harm. And so in this context, idolatry ran rampant. And so they needed to pursue truth that these idols, they don't exist. They hold no power. There's only one God, one true God. Now you might listen to that and say, Jermaine, let's keep going. We don't worship idols in America. We don't have um, statues that are made of wood or gold or silver or other precious metals. We don't, we don't do idolatry here, but I think we do. I was reading this past week in Timothy Keller's book, um, Counterfeit Gods. And here's what he says. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. 
And so I don't know what idol in 2022 may be grasping for your attention and seeking the number one spot in your heart and in your mind. But those idols aren't real. Run from them and run to God. Because he is the only true source of meaning, of hope, of purpose, of satisfaction. But to get there, you've got to firmly believe that this truth takes time to, to, to take root in your heart. It takes hard work, it takes commitment, it takes humility to allow your convictions to be informed by what is actually true. So there were some in the Corinthian church who were on this journey, but they weren't there yet. And so here's what Paul encourages uh, this church to, to, to respond with. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all have come to this firm conviction in their hearts and in their minds. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So what we see in verse 7 in particular is Paul is making a couple of um, assertions. The first of which is that not all Christians have fully formed um, opinions or convictions on certain issues. That's, wh that's why he says not all possess this knowledge. Then he says, but some through their former association with idols still believe that idols exist and that they hold power over us. And so he's bringing up this idea that um, our experiences, our upbringing, maybe even our culture, have an impact on what we believe, how we believe, and how we live our lives. Growing up, I um, grew up going to a, uh, a Baptist church where people loved God, they loved his word, they believed in the gospel, and they believed that going to the movies was something that Christians shouldn't do. And I don't know if anyone ever said those words specifically to me, but I, I knew it or understood it or I believed it. And I didn't for a long time. I don't now because I'm going to see Jurassic World tonight. Um, but I did hold that, that conviction at one point in time. And so Paul's point really here is deeply held beliefs don't change overnight. And we would do well to be patient with each other as we pursue truth, and as we're even patient with ourselves, that we allow truth to inform our convictions, not the other way around. And so when he says at the end of verse seven that, they, that their conscience is weak and it's defiled, that, that word weak doesn't mean that that person is uh, more easily running towards sin, but rather, like I've mentioned before, it's someone who's still formulating their conviction on a certain matter. Either because they believed and lived one way for their entire lives, or maybe they're younger and they're still formulating their worldview. And then verse 8, I don't want us to miss it. It's an easy verse to fly over um, where he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In other words, what commends us to God isn't our clear convictions, 
but a clean heart. What commends us to God isn't the things that we believe or that we're right. What commends us to God is that we are made new by Christ through surrendering our lives to him, believing in his finished work on the cross. That's what commends us to God. And unfortunately, unfortunately in our um, Christianity of 2022, we too often um, tie spiritual maturity to things that have nothing to do with spiritual maturity. I really believe that. That too often we tie beliefs or convictions to spiritual maturity. Like if someone holds your position or your view, then they're more spiritually mature. We've all, I think, got some repenting to do. Maybe intentionally or unintentionally, we've uh, told people um, by our words, by our actions, by our opinions, that if you, if, you, if you send your kid to public school or private school, you're more or less spiritual. If you discipline your kids a certain way, if you have a certain opinion on masks or vaccines or whatever it might be, and again, this isn't about one or the other opinion, it's about the fact that we so easily make those markers of spiritual maturity, and they're not. What commends us to God is a clean heart. So maybe, just maybe, a first step toward unity for some of us to apply today is to go to that family member, that loved one, or to publicly share it on uh, the social media platform that you shared your opinion as if it was a mark of spiritual maturity. Maybe, just maybe, the first step toward unity is to go seek forgiveness of that person or that group of people. There'll be a lot more unity among Christians if we pursued truth while practicing patience. So the Apostle Paul challenges the Corinthian church and us um, to care more about making a difference than making a point and to pursue truth while practicing patience if we, wanna, if we want to create unity when controversial topics push us to divide. And lastly, the Apostle Paul encourages us with habit number three, which is limit your freedom so others can freely follow Jesus. Limit your freedom so others can freely follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This portion of scripture flies in the face of the rugged individualism of 2022 America. It flies in the face of our selfishness and our pride and our let me do me. 
I remember um, in seminary when we were talking about this passage in one class and one of the students raised their hand and this isn't exactly what was said, but it was the idea behind what was said after reading this passage. They said, so you're telling me, professor, that just because someone might be negatively affected or influenced to sin because of my actions, that I should prayerfully consider not doing it? And the professor said, yes. That's exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you. That's exactly what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians 8. You see, Christians have freedom. We have lots of freedom to believe differently on controversial topics, but we are not free to damage another person's relationship with God. We're not free to damage another person's relationship with God. And he emphasizes this point in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, in other words, if anyone sees you who feels freer and has that conviction that idols don't exist, but they see you eating um, this meat sacrificed to idols, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak if his opinion or conviction isn't fully formed, will he not? Uh, will he not? If he it, will he not be encouraged? Sorry, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so the apostle Paul is saying, while you might be free, Corinthian Christian, to eat food in the idol's temple, is your example potentially confusing, or is your example potentially encouraging someone? to sin by doing something that they believe might be wrong. And so his basic idea is that your example influences others more than you might think. Your example influences others more than you might think. And I thought about this um, per, from a personal experience that I've had recently. Um, uh, like I said, my wife and I have been married for three and a half years, and for most of those three and a half years, I've done something um, that annoys my wife, like a good husband should from time to time. Uh, every time we sit down for a meal, or sometimes when we sit down for a meal, I'll do this. I'll just take a drink of a refreshing beverage, whatever it is. I'll do that afterwards. And she hates it. It's, it's so annoying to her. And so, of course, I do it from time to time. <laughs> like a good husband should. But unknowingly, while I was, you know, doing this, someone else was learning from me. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know where this is going. Watch this. <laughs> hey, I never sat down one time and said, now son, let's annoy your mom together and this is what we're gonna do. I never did that. But because he saw me do that, you know, multiple times, he learned it. He followed my example. And that's funny, um, but there are some more serious ways, maybe parents, that your children are learning from you without you saying a word. Maybe they're learning from you what you should value, what you should prioritize, what's important in your life. And even if you, you don't have kids, maybe you're married or you're, um, you're single, you have influence, more influence than you think on the people around you. So verse 11 says, and so by your knowledge, 
this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That, those last few phrases are really convicting because that's not the way we typically think of um, the people sitting around us or sitting with you guys at home. But we should view every Christian and every person as the object of Christ's love and affection. That's not just someone that's annoying you. That's not just someone that holds a different opinion than you. That's not just someone who needs to grow up and mature and come to have the same uh, conviction or belief that you do. That's someone for whom Christ died. And then he builds on that idea. It's not just someone for whom Christ died that you are um, causing, that you are not building up but instead tearing down. But even worse than that, verse 12 says, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so it's not just uh, an offense against that person when you don't limit your freedom so that they can freely follow Jesus, but it's an offense against the God of the universe. And to be clear, Paul is not saying in this, in this segment, he's not saying, hey, if someone would be offended by your actions, then you shouldn't do it. That's not what he's saying. Because if that was the standard, we wouldn't be doing too much. Because, yeah, true, because many people are offended by many things. Instead, he's saying, if your actions motivate or encourage a follower of Jesus to choose sin, even though you might be free to do it, you should consider refraining so that they can freely follow Jesus. An example of that would be, um, some of you guys know John Elmore, one of our teaching pastors around here. He's told his testimony many times from from stage where he's shared how um, before he trusted Christ, alcohol and the abuse thereof and the hurt and pain and shame that came from it ravaged his life before Christ. And so what Paul is challenging us here to do is that if I or you were to go to dinner um, with, with John Elmore, one of the things that you should do as a faithful follower of Jesus who's concerned about building up your brother is asking a question like this. Hey John, I know that alcohol was a struggle and a challenge that led to a lot of hurt and pain in your, in your life before Christ. I'd like to buy a drink while we're at dinner, but I don't want to if it's gonna cause you um, to be you know, tempted towards going back to this, this, this thing that caused so much hurt and pain in your life. And we would do well to respond favorably to whatever his, his request was in that moment. Why? So we could limit our freedom to help a brother freely follow Jesus. And, you know, that doesn't sound comfortable. That doesn't sound great. We would rather have rules, regulations, or law because that's so much easier than having a conversation. But God invites us into something greater than rules and regulations. He calls us and invites us to a higher law of love that sometimes invites you to limit your freedom so that others, other believers, can freely follow Jesus. And so Paul summarizes his whole response to the Corinthian church and to us with verse 13, where he says, Therefore... 
If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And that's not just a summary statement. That is a counter-cultural um, message that he is sending to you and I 2,000 years later. He's saying, hey, follower of Jesus, if me participating and, and eating meat sacrificed to idols causes you to be encouraged to run towards sin when, when that's not something you believe is right, I would rather go vegan. Now what kind of, of love, or where does that kind of commitment come from? Answer, the savior of the world left the comforts and the joys of heaven and he came to this earth he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death and he rose again from the dead. He came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for all of us. Why? So that we can be known by God, so that we can love God, so that we can seek knowledge, not for the sake of selfish gain or for our own purposes or for knowledge itself, but so that we can build others up, so that we can limit our freedoms to help other people follow Jesus. That's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us that we have an opportunity to demonstrate for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my question to you as we wrap up is this, what habit do you need to most develop in your life? Is it to care more about making a difference than making a point? Is it to pursue truth while practicing patience? I think that's the one that, that challenges me the most personally. Or is it to limit your freedom so others can freely follow Jesus? Because if you want to be a Christian um, that creates unity when controversial topics push us to divide, Man, 1 Corinthians 8 is such an incredible resource to turn to, to see the habits that you and I can put into practice to create unity over division. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, truly, to reflect and ask the question, God, which habit would you most want to be more evident in my life as a follower of you? How would you want me to respond? So I'll give you 30 seconds and then I'll wrap us up in prayer and then we'll worship God by reminding ourselves that the only way we can do that, that we can care more about making a difference and pursue truth while practicing patience and limit our freedom so others can follow Jesus is by daily surrender, building our lives on the firm foundation that is our Savior Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf and his resurrection and invitation into a life of following him. So take 30 seconds, meet with the Lord.
Father, would you help us? Would you help us to be a people, to be um, believers that create unity when controversial topics may push us to divide? Help us to be mindful at all times of what commends us to you, which is your son Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. Would you help us to care more about making a difference and making a point? Would you help us to pursue truth while practicing patience? God, would you help us to limit our freedom uh, so to allow others to freely follow you? May we be a, a different group of believers than maybe some other places in our world because we choose um, to limit our freedoms so others can follow you. We create unity um, when all these topics push us to divide. I pray for anyone who may be in the room or listening online who doesn't know how all of this is possible. I pray that your spirit would make it clear to them that it is only through surrendering their lives to you through the sacrifice of your son. We love you, and I pray that we would build our lives on the firm foundation that is you. In Jesus' name, amen.